0: Welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, and our producer, Lindsay. And we are streaming live from the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy Studio today. And today, we have Dr. Bernard and Dr. Al-Ajba on. And they have written a wonderful book. Um, They can tell me some of the stats on the book, but I know it's been going crazy on Amazon. It's called Patients at Risk. And why are patients at risk? Um, They will tell you more about that. So you want to listen to the entire episode. But really what the gist of it is, is when you a patient walks into the doctor's office. Do you know that that person is a doctor? And if they are a doctor, are they a doctor of nursing or are they a medical doctor (MDDO)? They are going to clear those things up because I think a lot of times as patients we don't necessarily know. Um, so it's important you know who your healthcare provider is and if they are properly trained. We are going to get into the meat and potatoes of that, and these two are experts in it, and they're going to um, introduce themselves and tell us all about their book, Doctor Bernard. And Dr. Al-Ajba, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Thank you.
0: So, Rebecca, you're welcome. I'll let you start. <laughs> and thank yeah. you guys for being on. We, we know you guys are busy doctors as, as well as authors. So, um, you know, we want to uh, really uh, give you appreciation and, and we're grateful for you guys being on. So, Dr. Bernard, go ahead and tell us about your book.
1: Yeah, well, you know, first I want to say thank you for acknowledging that we are practicing physicians because some of the feedback that we've gotten recently on our book is maybe these two should spend a little more time on patient care instead of complaining about other people. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is that Naran and I are both practicing physicians, we're both primary care physicians, and we just coincidentally happen to have, have the exact same number of years of experience. We went to medical school at the same time, across the country from each other. So we are practicing primary care physicians. And the reason we wrote this book is because we've actually seen firsthand the problems that are occurring across the country. And we've become really deeply concerned about it. And we thought it was something that, first of all, not all physicians know about. And so most patients don't know about it. And we realized we really needed to uh,
2: bring this up to the public. And, and the part that Rebecca also didn't, didn't mention about our, our private practices, we're both full. I mean, um, I, my practice has been open for 50 years. My father started it in 1971. So um, I've already seen three third generation patients. So that that's means so my cool. dad, so cool. <laughs> it is cool. And that means my dad took care of the grandparents as children. And then he and I cared for the parents as children. And now I'm taking care of those children. So I want to be really clear when when some of the feedback from the AANP and other um, large organizations are saying we directly profit from hurting the NP profession, I really want it clear that we don't profit from hurting anyone. We wouldn't want to profit from hurting anyone. And that's really why we're talking about this subject. I think for both of us, we're on the front lines. We're seeing things happening that normally maybe didn't happen even 20 years ago. And so we've watched this change in the non-physicians sort of flooding the medical system. And for both of us, I think it's near and dear to our heart. We went into primary care for a reason. And I, I think we both really love it still. So I you know, want to be clear, we're full. Both of us have full, completely full practices. I have a wait list. I suspect Dr. Bernard has, has a wait list as well. It's actually frustrating that this is going on because I'd love to have more doctors and properly trained and educated nurse practitioners and PAs out here in this rural area with me. Um, but what I'm seeing is some who are going to online school, they don't have nursing experience, Um, They go straight from their bachelor's. They are getting their bachelor's degree to nurse practitioner school. And then we have a a local nurse practitioner here who calls herself a pediatrician. And to me, um, that's really not transparent. And, And I think what we owe patients is transparency
1: we realized that there was a lot of confusion out there. And part of it is because non-physician practitioners have done a really great job at marketing themselves, going directly to patients. Uh, you can open up the USA Today and see a full, full spread ad saying your PA can, can handle it, is what it further goes on to say. Or you can turn on the TV and see something that says, we choose NPs. But very rarely do you see any type of publicity or adv- advocation for physician practitioners, uh, for physicians I should say. So we realized that there's a big agenda to promote non-physician practitioners and we kind of wondered, you know, why is that and how is this happening? And we started to do some research and what was so interesting was we started uncovering some really interesting information. First of all, we learned that the first nurse practitioner and physician assistant program were both created by physicians and coincidentally they both opened in 1965 so a lot of times you'll hear it said there are 50 years or five decades of research on these professionals and that's true but as we continue to research we learned that the re- that what's actually out there in the studies is not exactly what you what is what is proclaimed which is they'll they'll argue well we can do the same work as physicians what we found out was in every single study that has ever been done nurse practitioners and physician assistants have always been under the supervision of a physician. So they have had pretty good outcomes and they have been able to give great care, but always with a physician and never independently. And even in articles that claim that they're independent, when you dig into them, which Naran did a great job of doing, you find out that it's not true. So patients are being being sold a bill of goods, which is to say that these professionals are just as good as doctors. We have all the studies to show it, and that's not true.
2: Well, I whenever Rebecca talks about that, which is the best point of our book, is that these five decades of research show that nurse practitioners and PAs provide safe, high-quality health care when supervised. Um, you know, i like to talk about a quick primer on the Burlington study, which was the first real large randomized trial on nurse practitioners. And it was two family physicians working in a small area that needed help. So they had two excellent RNs that worked with them and had worked with them for years. And they said, I wonder if we can train you guys with a little bit more education to kind of see follow-up patients independently. And, and in a nutshell, the, the um, study was a resounding success. And these two physicians were able to expand their reach to 22% more patients because these nurses who were longtime experienced nurses and probably extremely valuable in their clinic see these follow-ups that were straightforward and protocol driven. And so when people say we don't like nurse practitioners, um, it's, that's a ridiculous accusation because I think there's so many great things we can do in healthcare to expand our reach and to expand our capacity if we do it safely.
0: You know, I was born in 1970 in a small town, Othello, Washington, not far from Moses Lake. And they had one of the first couple physicians assistants from the University of Washington program, which actually ended up, they started out training Navy medics, I believe. And it was in, right. And um, John Betts and Paul Snyder, they were both PAs. They were hired in the late 60s in Othello. They were some of the first, they were the first number one graduating class from that program. and. It was because they couldn't get doctors in Othello. Um, So it made a lot of sense. And, you know, they, but they had a lot of training too. I mean, they were Navy medics. So they, and they had seen battle. So they'd seen it all. So there was a lot of training like that. And now from what you're telling me is that you can be a nurse practitioner without being a nurse first. Is that correct?
2: Yep. That's what's happening now. Go ahead, Naran. Well, you, so being a nurse, you can get a nursing, you need to get a nursing degree to apply to nurse practitioner school, but you don't need to work as a nurse. And so that's huge. I mean, there are number in Washington, there's a, there's a Eastern Washington, there's a large nurse practitioner practice. I I won't name it, but um, that uh, is run by a man who literally went, got his RN degree and then right back to get his DNP. He calls himself a behavioral specialist and with children, no less. And he has just a family nurse practitioner, a doctorate in family nurse practitioner a nurse practitioner specialty and what's amazing is he really didn't work as a nurse very long if at all.
1: Programs that are called direct entry and what that means is you can have a bachelor's degree in any subject economics theater art and you can get accepted into this direct entry program and what they do is they get you your nursing license in the very first you know, very little bit of nurse practitioner school so then now you're technically a nurse and you also but you go immediately into becoming a nurse practitioner so we've seen posts by there's a particular person that posts a lot that we've learned so much from. He's now a nurse practitioner at a minute clinic in Florida, uh, providing primary care with minimal oversight. He brags online about how he had a degree in psychology, He went to an accelerated direct entry program. Within two years, he had his license to be a nurse practitioner. And now he's treating patients pretty much independently in an urgent care setting. So that's the things that we're seeing and that we're deeply concerned about, because you're right, when this all started, the people that went into these programs typically were very dedicated people. They were often nurses that had been nurses for many years. They wanted to go a little further with their education or they saw a need that needed to be filled. Same for physicians assistants, many of them were in other health professionals before they went into mm-hmm. physician assistant programs. And so they were really dedicated people. And that's not to say that, that still isn't, there isn't some of that now, but unfortunately, because there's been such a push to train more NPs and PAs. We're seeing fierce competition for students. We're seeing schools reaching out to potential students online saying, hey, you can make a lot of money in these careers with a very short amount of training time. You can do it all online. You can do it accelerated. You can do it while you work. And there are programs that have 100% uh, acceptance rates. So anybody that applies is accepted. So now we're seeing, of course, there are these same dedicated people that are out there, but then we're seeing also an awful lot of other students that maybe don't have that same level of dedication and they're being just pushed right through the system. These programs, they almost never fail anybody. We've had preceptors tell us that they've told the school, I can't pass this student, they're, they're not dedicated, they don't know what they're doing. And the school just says, well, you know, you have to, that's what happens because they're making money off of these students. So the preceptorship is really questionable. I know that you interviewed Rain Thoman. She's a nurse who was going to a nurse practitioner school. People like her have reported their schools for not doing an adequate job, and they really come up empty. They're not getting a response to that. Although I will mention that recently there are two different nurse practitioner programs. One is under investigation for fraud, and the other is to lose its credentialing because uh, they weren't having enough students pass the exams. But what's interesting is even though they're doing that, the students that have graduated from those programs, they're out there taking care of patients and we have no idea if they're qualified to do that. So this is the danger that we see for patients and it's what we're really concerned about.
0: Well, and and one of the things that really concerned me uh, is, you know, there are a lot of qualified physicians assistants and nurse practitioners and a lot of them, You know, they were nurses for 20 years before they were nurse practitioners, and they they are very qualified, and it just really decreases the integrity of their entire profession, um, what these, you know, I think I've heard the term diploma mills are doing, because it really it really just, yeah, it really just um, makes people wonder about all nurse practitioners when that's not true because there's a lot of qualified nurse practitioners. We work with a lot of them in our pharmacy. Janet, do you have any comments or questions about, uh, um, for the doctors?
3: I do. Um, so, you know, under your training, um, We've talked about it prior to the show um, going on. I don't know if the public realizes how many hours that a physician, an MD or a DO puts in prior to being solo as a practicing provider under the res- residency program. So can you address that to the public so they understand the difference between walking out of online and not having any of that versus what, what your education has provided for you? So what's interesting is I've sat on the admissions committee for uh, the University of Washington for
2: 20 years, even as a student. Go Huskies! Go no Huskies! Um, <laughs> and so, um, as part of it, you know, we have precepting experience before we even apply to medical school. And the University of Washington asked to have 40 or 50 hours even prior to being accepted. We don't even count that, but it's a worthwhile mention that this kind of goes on. So in medical school, roughly in the in the two clinical years, third and fourth year, you accumulate about 6,000 hours of hands-on patient training. And this is stitching people up. This is procedures. This is working in the ER, um, surgery. There's a bunch of core rotations we do. So we are really hands-on. I mean, depending on where you go in Washington state, you can be a first assist for a surgeon if it's a small enough area. So again, that 6,000 hours isn't just walking around a clinic. It's really tough stuff. And then on top of it, you choose your specialty, family practice, pediatric, internal medicine, The list goes on and on. And those are roughly between three to five years on average. And so when you calculate it out with residency, with the reduced hours even in residency, now there's hourly limitations, it's still 16,000 hours, 15 to 16,000 when you finish. And for Rebecca and I, who both started residency uh, the last century in 1999, um, you know, we were doing, call. I mean, it was under the old system. So her and I easily had 20,000 hours of hands-on experience. I mean, I was running a third year, you run the pediatric hospital floor and, you know, you have codes every night that you're running by yourself with students underneath you. So this is really tough hands-on training. And and it's a very different thing when you're talking about the nurse practitioner requirements. And, And again, I'm excluding, like you said, there are amazing nurse practitioners who had years of clinical experience. I mean, that's the whole point. Um, and that rigorous training went on until probably about 2010, and now it's becoming watered down. Not every school, but these new schools are cropping up. They only require 500 to 2,000 hours, and they even let you count some of your hours prior to matriculation. So, I mean, it's night and day. And yeah, um, let, me, let me
1: just let me just drive that home. Yeah. She's not. Uh, she didn't uh, slur her speech there. 500 hours minimum requirement to become a nurse practitioner. Physicians, 15,000 hours minimum, and yet you may have a state like California that says that you can't practice medicine as a physician until you've completed your entire three-year residency minimum, that's 15,000 hours, but you can come out as a nurse practitioner with 500 minimum hours and start working towards independent practice. How, in what world does that make any sense? It just doesn't
2: and to make matters even to go further not only can you come out and work you can work in any field you like so meaning mm. i am qualified to be, be a pediatrician rebecca is qualified to be a family physician she and i are not removing the appendix of a small child who's ill right like we could try but i don't think it would go very well and so the bottom line is you know if a nurse practitioner comes out and says this week i'm doing pediatrics next week i want to go work in the orthopedics clinic nothing will stop that And then again, I'm not commenting about qualifications or education. Bottom line, you can go work in neurosurgery clinic. One of my patients recently came back from Children's Hospital in Seattle, seeing a neurosurgeon uh, nurse practitioner. Now, she may have great training, and I'm not arguing that she does or doesn't, but didn't do a program to become a neurosurgery specialist. And And I just think that that's a worthwhile thing to say. Next week, she could switch to gastroenterology.
0: Well, and I mean, one of the reasons we're having this podcast is the main reason is the same reason you guys wrote the book is just to educate people that they need to know who their healthcare provider is. And here's one of the problems: is that patients just think that oh, these people have a license, whether it be a pharmacy license, whether it be a nursing license, whether it be a doctor's license, and they're qualified to take care of me. Well, that's not always the case. Um, patients need to do their own research. So that's oh, I appreciate you guys being on. So here's one of the things. Um, You know, I always say, or I quite often say, is follow the money. So how much of this is being driven by large institutions to hire nurse practitioners instead of physicians?
2: A great deal of it is being driven by the corporations. So what corporations, they get actually, they get to double dip, which is really kind of the the interesting part of this. If you're working in a hospital system and you're in an emergency room or even an outpatient clinic it's definitely been shown through multiple studies that costs associated for the healthcare that a nurse practitioner provides are way higher. They do more tests, they do more imaging, they do more follow-up, et cetera. And, and as far as the reasons, we don't know, but that's what the data shows. So now a hospital system trying to make money. So when the hospitals bought up all the primary care clinics, we're kind of poor doctors. I, you know to, to, Rebecca and I are not rich by any means. We don't need to be rich. We love what we do, but it's not a high money specialty. So what the hospitals are looking at is, wow, we're losing money just seeing patients. We need CTs, we need MRIs, we need labs done, we need more things ordered. They actually have started tracking that. And so what's interesting is, do you want to pay somebody, let's say 75% of what you'd pay a physician, if that person who you're paying 75% of a physician's salary is generating two times the revenue in expenses? It's a no-brainer. The hospital looks at that and says, well, they're making up cost and I'm paying them less. And if people get extra studies, well, what's the harm? And, and that's what we're finding is it's driving up cost.
1: Absolutely. You know, of course, it didn't. This wasn't the whole idea of having NPs and PAs. Like I mentioned, the professions were started by physicians. The idea was, how can we get more primary health care to underserved patients? That was the whole concept of this profession. Let's train them. Let's give them a little extra training. And let's send them out to these areas that really need care. And let's have them do the things that are within their scope. For example the first nurse practitioner program was for pediatrics and it was to do well child visits to go out in the community check children get them their vaccines do education really really important stuff and the same actually for physician assistants the idea again was to do primary care in underserved areas that's how it all began but then we start to see some dollar signs. And I think, you know, first of all, the government invested very heavily in these specialties. Uh, the U.S. government gave $100 million to train nurse practitioners by the year 1981. In 1977, they passed the Rural Health Care Clinic Act that mandated that all rural clinics that receive federal funding had to staff with at least 50% nurse practitioners and physician assistants. I think part of this was this idea that that would generate more, that would bring more people to the area. But actually what it's done is it's limited physicians being able to work in these types of environments. And then of course, we also had some private companies that have had a very uh, strong interest in nurse practitioners. In our research, we discovered that the Robert Wood Johnson foundation, which is the uh, charitable foundation of Johnson & Johnson, one of the largest manufacturers of healthcare products and pharmaceuticals in the world, has invested millions and millions and millions of dollars into training nurse practitioners and in increasing their scope. They gave money to create this report called the Future of Nursing Report, which specifically called for nurse practitioners to become, quote, full partners with physicians. So the question is, well, why would Robert Wood Johnson have so much interest in nurse practitioners? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's possible that it's because they sell a lot of pharmaceuticals, and we know that nurse practitioners and PAs prescribe a lot more pharmaceuticals, including, unfortunately, opioid medications. Janssen, which is a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson, uh, is is a manufacturer of opioid medications. And of course, uh, all of these minute clinics, by the way, CVS Caremark has a very close relationship with Robert Wood Johnson and all of their minute clinics, these urgent cares are staffed by nurse practitioners who then prescribe drugs that they fill at the very same CVS. So I'm not saying that this is being done intentionally, but I do notice that there is a correlation there and there really should be some question marks being raised as far as whether this is really safe and good practice or whether there's financial incentive in it
0: as usual, follow the money that one does sound very uh maybe it is a coincidence, but um, it does <laughs> sound like follow the money Janet, do you have some more questions for dr. Bernard and dr Alajma
3: I do so as a patient or a consumer um, I'm sure that um, we're opening some eyes up right now. And so what are the tips that you have for them? Because I personally only, uh, as a pharmacist, only recommend providers that I feel comfortable with their knowledge base. But I think as a consumer out there, they're like, well, they're licensed, Um it seems like this is a nice place. This is a big clinic, or this is a urgent care, and and the state said it was okay for them to be here. So they they walk in with um, faith. They walk in just believing that that individual that's in front of them is going to give them the best care that they need in a naive way. And I, and it should be that way in my opinion, but that isn't exactly what's happening. So what would you recommend to somebody, you know, and, and really I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tugging at the strings of even like a mother with a child, because, you know, if somebody's really sick, that mom is already at this level of stress, you know, they just want to take care of their child. So what what would you recommend to the consumer?
2: Well, as a pediatrician, I often say, I think the most important decision you're gonna make in your parenting journey is who takes care of your children? Who is your pediatrician or pediatric provider? So I say, ask questions. And if you ask someone what their education is, where they got it, um, or do they have an MD or DO behind their name? Um, Or if you want a pediatric nurse practitioner and where they got their training and then check out their school, ask them how many hours they've had. Anyone who gets upset with a patient asking those things, there's something wrong with them. And that goes for doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs, any kind of clinician who has trouble or is gets offended when you ask them their background, I think is probably a red flag because, you know, originally 50 years ago when we opened clinics, we had to have our diplomas on the wall so patients could see them. And and I think really the whole name of the game is transparency. We see uh, non-physicians calling themselves pediatricians, which is a by definition is a physician. Uh, We see them saying, "Well, doctors don't own pediatricians." Actually, doctors own pediatrician. They own anesthesiologist. They own internal medicine. You know, those types of uh, titles are really physicians by definition. So yes, you can say you're a doctor and you can say, I have a doctor of medical science, which would be a background education as a PA. You can say, I am a doctor of nursing practice. So I'm a doctor of nursing specifically. Um, but again, I think ask. So when someone says, okay, you're a doctor, are you an MD or DO? Um, then they can answer those questions. And and I think that that's what we should be doing. I mean, patients deserve transparency. They deserve honesty. Uh, and if we, if we can't offer them that, then what on earth can we offer them? And, yeah.
0: and I appreciate that. That's a great explanation. Thank you for that, Dr. i I'm going to even go a little bit further than that. Um, Jan and I have our bachelor's in pharmacy. We don't have a doctor's in pharmacy. And I will tell you that the doctrine pharmacy thing, and we can go down this road too, I think um, it was really – it diluted the degree is what it really did. It extended it out so the far, so this pharmacy schools could make graduate tuition. It didn't make the students any smarter. It didn't make them any better. In fact, it made them worse because they – now everybody – now there's lots more pharmacy schools, lots more admissions. Um, and – Honestly, it bothers me as a pharmacist to call a pharmacist a doctor. I get it; their education a doctor, and I get it. My brother's got his PhD. He's a doctor. But in a clinical setting, there are two people that should be called doctor, and they should have MD or DOs behind their name. We should not, in my opinion, we should not call a doctor in front of patients, a nurse or a, or a pharmacist, because I think that's confusing to patients, because they really don't know the difference. That's why it's important that we're getting the education out there. Can you comment on that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, mean, I think you're 100%, 100% right on that. And it's so interesting because we're recently there was a little expose of this and a, a, a news organization actually interviewed the president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. And they challenged her on this and they asked her this and they said, well, you're calling yourself a doctor. Do you practice medicine as a nurse practitioner? And she said, we practice healthcare." care. So it's, it's very confusing. It's using semantics. And I couldn't agree with you more in a clinical setting. Patients need to know who's a physician and who is not a physician. And then that way they're educated and they can make their own decision. What's unfortunate is that sometimes patients don't have a choice. And one of the reasons that Naran and I wrote this book, we actually centered our book around a really tragic story of a young woman. She was only 19 years old, a college athlete and she developed sudden chest pain and shortness of breath and fainted. So she was taken by ambulance to a local emergency room where she saw a woman who introduced herself as a physician, who treated her for 11 hours, but did not correctly diagnose her with a blood clot in her lungs. Instead, she she totally misdiagnosed her. The poor young woman ended up finally transferred, but she passed away. She did not survive and that was because she did not get proper care and she was under the impression that she was being treated by a physician. And uh, this is the tragedy that we're seeing, and this is what we do not want to happen. Patients need to know this so that they can ask. And what I usually advise to patients is, you know, it may be okay for you to see a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant in some cases, especially if it's something minor, or if you know that that they have a backup physician if things are not going right. But if you're very ill, If something is going on with you, you're not getting better. You need to ask to see a physician. I recommend any new problem and any worsening problem should warrant evaluation by a physician because that's the person who has the most training and the most education to properly diagnose you.
0: Uh, Yeah, thanks for clearing that up. That's a horrible, tragic story. And, you know, I I would think that it's probably fraud to introduce yourself as a physician and you're not, but i I'm not a legal expert, but, uh, you know, speaking of when you should use a nurse practitioner. So, I, you know, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. So do you really need to go to um, school and get training for eight years to diagnose, you know, routine diaper rash? Shouldn't a physician assistant or nurse practitioner be able to, to do that? Even for a primary diagnosis, the first time the patient the patient goes in for that, shouldn't a nurse practitioner or a, a PA be able to diagnose that, Dr. Bernard?
1: You know, I, I as you were saying that, I was just thinking of something that just happened in my office last week. This woman had a yeast infection. She went uh, to the urgent care. She got some yeast medication. She didn't get better. She came to me. I said, "Well, this is kind of unusual. Let's get some blood work." Her blood sugar was five hundred. So yep. she had a yeast infection that wouldn't get better. Yep. Now, granted, I mean, maybe what she, what the nurse, what the urgent care did was not necessarily wrong the first time you would try this. But the problem is that sometimes things that are routine are not routine. They turn right. out to be potentially life-threatening. So that's where having that level of expertise and that question to go a little further, something isn't always exactly as it may appear.
2: Yeah, and I, was, sure. I was going to say the same thing. I mean, I've seen a diaper rash present as the initial presentation in DKA, which is type 1 diabetes in children, and it's a medical emergency. So I've seen non-physician practitioners send a child in DKA home uh, to follow up with endocrine clinic. They don't, So so some of them in small communities don't realize it's a medical emergency, and they've got to go immediately to the emergency room. Their PH gets out of balance, and they have all sorts of complications. And the thing is, we go to school for all that time. And to be honest, I think physicians still would say, looking back on their careers, they've missed cases they've made mistakes. Because to be honest with you, maybe we should be trained for 50,000 hours. Um, I worked with my dad for 16 years. And I remember when he first died, it was kind of sudden. And a patient looked at me when I didn't know what to do about something and said, it's hard to do this without parental supervision, right? And <laughs> I said, you know, it is, I've been doing this now, 11 years of school, 16 years of practice, 27 years of hands-on experience. And I still don't know what to do me too. I
1: look things up every single day yeah. on Up to Date to double check myself. I send people to specialists because sometimes I don't know. And I have the same number of years. And it's that humility that makes us realize we don't know everything. But what we do know is one thing that's very important. We know what we don't know. That's the problem. It's kind of this weird thing of not knowing what you don't know. If you haven't seen enough cases of something, you don't know what can go wrong. I think at least we may not know everything, but we know when something isn't right and we know that we need to get further evaluation or take it to another level. And that's the challenge with people that don't have a lot of experience or training is that they're really limited on what they can even think could be a possibility. And you know, we talk in our book about something called Dunning-Kruger effect, which is this idea that's very been very well developed in psychology, which is that many people have a false and elevated belief in themselves, in their level of understanding of a subject, especially when they're a complete novice. Usually have the highest belief in yourself before you know anything. And then as you begin to learn about a subject, your self-confidence begins to dip and it drops down to like a very low point. Usually doctors get that in about like medical school, third, fourth year, maybe their intern year, they just feel like, I don't know anything because they realize how much more there is. And then with the time and experience, your self-confidence slowly begins to come Mm -hmm. back up, although it never gets to that same degree as someone that has no idea and they think they know it all. But that's really dangerous. You know, in our book, we give an example of a nurse practitioner who treated a 10-year-old girl who had abdominal pain. She could barely walk down the hall, she was in so much pain, but the nurse practitioner checked her urine and saw an abnormality and said, okay, she has a urine infection, and discharged her home. Unfortunately, the child had appendicitis, which and her appendix ruptured and she died. And the nurse practitioner, even in retrospect, said, I had complete confidence in my diagnosis. I was convinced that it was this. And it was because maybe she had never seen a case of appendicitis or she didn't know enough to realize that a child that just has a simple UCI shouldn't have trouble walking down the hall. So that's—it's not that you can know everything, but you have to kind of know where you have gaps in your knowledge. You have to have that index of suspicion for things that can go very wrong very quickly.
0: So it sounds like that you know hands-on practice is what's the most one of the most important things. Is that correct? Yes. And yeah, so there, there's get, no
1: substitute for just, right. it's it really unfortunate. I wish there was. I wish, like, sometimes we talk in medicine about this thing called stolen valor. That's what they usually refer to when, you know, in military situations where somebody, you know, acts like they did all these heroic things that they really didn't. Well, in medicine, we kind of have that. And it's not that we're heroes, but we sacrifice. And we spend so many hours and we so many sleepless nights and so much loss of our youth, of our fertility. We defer all these things to become physicians. And I think that's why you'll see a lot of women physicians speaking up about this. It's kind of interesting. I've wondered why women are so vocal about it. But I think it's because when we think back to what we did and how much effort we put in, and then for someone to say, oh, you didn't need to do any of that. I can do the same thing in just this that's when we get so frustrated and upset. But the truth is, there really is no other way to gain this experience and knowledge than to put the time in to be in the trenches, to see the volume, you need to be in a busy place that sees a lot of patients, because you'll see a lot of healthy kids before you see that one that's really sick. You know, I think obstetrics is a perfect example. I mean, how many women deliver babies perfectly, normally, everything goes great. And then once out of, Thousands of times, something catastrophically goes wrong. And if that happens, you really better have seen it before and you better know how to deal with it. And the only way to be able to do that is to have been there when one happened before. And that's just happens through time.
0: So let's go back to schooling um, because uh, it's changed a lot. I think even, you know, I can tell the pharmacy schools have changed a lot. There's more pharmacists being graduated. There's more schools. The schools are opening more admissions. Um, medical schools are no different. Uh, I just read an article the other day about Kaiser Permanente is opening their own medical school. I think it's in 2020. They were doing that. I don't know when their gra- first graduating class will be, if it's 24 or not, but um, so can you speak on, you know, I know there's three, there used to be only one medical school in, in, in Washington and maybe Dr. Um, Al-Ajba can help me with this, but I believe there's three now because WSU has their medical school and actually there's four because there's a DO school in Yakima and then Gonzaga opened up one, but I think Gonzaga might be a branch of UW. So clear me up on that Dr. Al-Ajba if I'm wrong. So actually there's four medical schools now and 10 years ago there was only one. And so there's been a lot more physicians um, that are being graduated. So, Tell us why these places are not diploma mills. Why are these physicians, why are these doctors being graduated? Why are they any, why are they any more well-trained?
2: Well, um, I, you know, I'm not as familiar with Gonzaga. So if you'd asked me, I would have told you Washington State has three medical schools because I knew about the DO school in Yakima. And then um, I was on the University of Washington City the year Wazoo was going to be opening up their medical school. And there were some grumblings, just not UW necessarily just in the community, in the medical community as a whole saying, well, I wonder if they'll be able to meet the stringent criteria that the University of Washington can. And I do have um, actually patients who've grown up and are now going and attending those schools. And my feeling after hearing how Wazoo, Washington State University is doing, they're doing the same core competency classes, the two years of the hard science, and then the two years of clinical. There's a little more clinical, I think, thrown in the first two years, um, but there's very specific criteria to be accredited, and and the thing is, it's not online. You you might do a portion of something online, but but you're going into the hospital. You're getting hands-on experience. You're you've got preceptors that are designated in their community. You know they've the sites have been checked out by all the schools. It's a much more stringent um, regulated thing, and of course that goes back to the flexner report which we covered in our book. Uh, which was someone who went around the country and made sure these specific recommendations uh, could be met. So again, the standardized testing. And then to even go further, there's three steps of the U.S. medical licensing exam. Step one is, and at least it used to be 16 hours, eight hours over two days. Uh, It's basic sciences, the core piece of that. You have to pass that to go on to do your third and fourth year, and there are people who don't. You get two chances and you're out. Um, Same thing with step two, Step three is taken uh, during or after your intern year. Uh, That would be step three, and um, I know a physician or two in this my community actually who couldn't pass step three on their second go, and they basically have medical school debt they can't practice. And so, you know, we have really stringent hoops to to go through. Again, we're taking care of patients. We're 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 really in a situation where the more experience, the better. I mean, it's serious what we do, especially being in a small community. I mean you see stuff every day and uh, it's it's not just coughs and colds and and you've got to know when pneumonia is hiding in the middle of the flu season you've got to know when the kid is septic you've got to know when they have diabetes instead of a rash and these things take years to learn and that's the piece that I think people are missing
1: right and so, like you mentioned, yeah one of the limiting factors is residency training and um if you don't have good grades, if you don't have the right temperament, if you, don't, if you didn't pass your exams, you're not going to get a residency slot. You know, Sometimes you'll hear, well, you know, there are all these doctors that are going to schools outside of the United States, and what about them? Well, the fact of the matter is most of those medical student graduates don't get a residency slot. They're almost always taken up 100% by United States trained physicians that have passed all the exams and meet the criteria and only the creme de la creme of those outside of the United States might get lucky enough to get a residency slot. And if you don't get at least one year of residency, and in many states it's three years, you cannot be licensed to practice medicine. So you must complete not only medical school and pass all those standardized examinations, but you have to complete your residency training as well. And so those are all the different stop gaps and measures where a bad, potentially bad doctor can be washed out and not make it into circulation. You don't see those same sorts of criteria in non-physician practitioner training. They usually have one exam that they take. Nurse practitioners take one, they call it a board exam. It's uh, 300 questions and three to four hours. I think it's actually 200 questions over three hours. And once they take their one board exam, they never have to take another exam. All they have to do is certify that they've completed a certain number of hours of work, which can be volunteer work as well to maintain their board certification. And that's not the same for physicians. So there's a lot of different areas that patients are being protected from doctors and making sure that they are competent to practice.
0: Is there any concern with these uh, a big a big company, uh, corporate healthcare like Kaiser Permanente, starting their own medical school and they could actually have their own residency? So, can you comment on that? Could they actually control the quality, or is there going to be some kind of competency that they're going to have to show compared to other student other uh, schools?
1: You know, I would say that there's just their standardization across all medical schools and all residencies. They're all under an umbrella of a certifying organization for residencies. It's the uh, ACGME. It's called Graduate Medical Education Accreditation. So although some of these organizations may be able to perhaps have a little bit of influence on those factors, there is always the same training that must be completed and competencies that must be gained for physicians. I think where these organizations are probably looking is they're, they're hoping that these graduate residents will stay at their organization when they finish, which is usually the case. Most physicians, uh, they work about within 100 miles of where they completed their residency. So this is probably a strategy on the part of the organization to, inc- to recruit and retain physicians to work for their organization.
2: I will say if you're going to charge no tuition, the the good news about that is that they will be flooded with applications. And so I do think (laughs) what's interesting is they will probably get the top um, people in the country from whatever state, from wherever they are. Uh, They're not limited to the state residency requirement. Really, when I applied, I could go to one school. It's the only school I lived, you know, that was available in the state I lived in. So it, it does open up the options and I think they will be flooded with top students and top you know, applicants that have a lot of experience. And again, um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But I I think offering the free tuition is an interesting twist, because uh, I think they'll get quality applicants. And with quality applicants, they'll be able to do, you know, following these standardization. I think uh, with the step one, step two, step three testing, you know, it will still be regimented um it it might be a conflict of interest to come out and be automatically employed by kaiser but i'm i don't want to speak ill of anything that i that's new to me so so i don't know we'll have to wait and see what happens i'm pretty
1: much in support of most strategies that are out there that are going to increase the number of physicians the united states ranks 24th out of 28 similar nations when it comes to the number of physicians per capita so we have one of the lowest and You know you may ask well maybe that has something to do with why our health outcome rates are not as good as many uh similar nations that are similar to us in wealth what i think is interesting is that the united states has the highest number of non-physician practitioners in the whole world we started those professions here in the united states a few other countries have embraced it a little bit like the netherlands and maybe the united kingdom but not to the same extent as we have in the united states And the same thing is for physician training, even though we've increased medical school slots by about 30% in the last 20 years, there's been a, a cap on residency spending. So there really hasn't been any increase in residency slots. So as I mentioned, you can graduate a million medical students if you don't have a place for them to do residency, that's it, they can never practice medicine. So this is a problem that we have in our country. And pretty much any way that can continue to produce qualified physicians, whatever it's going to take, I'm going to be advocating for that rather than simply replacing physicians with someone that received 500 hours of training.
3: So Agreed. Dr. Bernard, um, prior to the show, we were discussing that you are involved in some education and, and um, you discussed a podcast. Can you tell us about the podcast that you folks are putting out there for our consumers and patients so they can be um, informed?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. You know, Naran and I spent about three years writing this book. And so we have all these you know, uh, unbelievable cases and sad situations. And once we publish the book, we, it doesn't mean that these cases don't stop happening. And we hear about them. And Naran and I said to ourselves, wow, it's, uh, it's I mean, this book could have gone on forever if we just kept adding more information. But obviously, at some point we had to get it out there. And so in the meantime, until we come up with a second edition down the road, we felt that we had to get these stories out. So what we decided to do was to create a podcast and a youtube channel and it's called patients at risk just like the name title of our book and in every episode we discuss some of the things we've talked about today the differences in training we bring in a different guest every time we recently had a psychiatrist explain to us the difference between psychiatrists and psychiatric nurse practitioners we discuss cases in which patients were harmed because of being cared for by a non-physician, and we, we, in fact, interview patients that have been harmed. So the uh, podcast is called Patients at Risk, and you can get that anywhere you download podcasts, and our YouTube channel is also Patients at
0: Risk. We'll try to stream that. We're streaming your book right now. We'll try to stream that uh, YouTube channel, too. That That's great. You know, it's an interesting story, and it's very common to my story. And I, I feel your pain, you know, you write a book and you think that, okay, now that you've written a book, you're done, right? (laughs) But you're not done. It's never done. Cause then you think of other stories and you think of another book or you have a podcast to, to help keep educating, um, to help keep educating consumers about your book. So I appreciate the work that you guys are doing. You guys are doing a wonderful job and I appreciate you guys taking the time to be on today. Um, you know, one of the goals of our podcast is, um, to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their own health. And I think we did that today. I think we, you know, we showed them that they, you guys were great at, at, at telling them the questions to answer about, or to ask about the, you know, their, um, their healthcare provider and just some of those questions. I think that's great because patients need to be in charge of their own health and be proactive with it. And that includes choosing their doctor. So I appreciate you guys being on today. Um, I'm going to ask you separately, um, Dr. Bernard, what fires you up? What do you have a passion for? I think it's rather obvious, but go ahead.
1: Yeah, so (laughs) many things. But you know what really I'm passionate about is physician wellness because – A doctor that's healthy and happy is going to be able to take care of patients. So really overall, everything I work towards is trying to help patients. You know, I grew up very poor. My mother had severe mental illness. She did not get good health care. She died very young and very early. And so I have a real passion for making sure that underserved patients get quality health care. I do that every day. I'm a direct primary care physician. I love providing affordable, accessible health care, and I think it's a great way for doctors to get out of a very broken healthcare care system. So I'm always begging my colleagues to consider this as an option, especially if they're burned out. So uh, uh, physician wellness, direct primary care, and patient advocacy. Those are the things that get me really excited.
0: Dr. Al-Ajba, your turn. What do you have a passion for?
2: Well, uh, passion is really for children, first and foremost. I have four of my own, and then I like to say I have 3,000 in this community. Um, <laughs> and so I love children. I've always loved children. And I feel like if you intervene early and you educate and empower them as children, uh, they are really, it's amazing what my teenagers will say to me when they come back from seeing a specialist or something else. Um, they're, they're, they're critics because they have you know, their feelings about the kind of care they want. And so to Dr. Bernard's point, my second probably, you know, commitment or or thing I'm passionate about is patient empowerment. To me, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to give you information and and then kind of let you decide. Obviously, if it's an emergency, that's a little bit of a different situation. But a lot of what we do is just education, 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 and then let patients make their decision. And so those are my big two. And again, I, I even have a fourth generation patient now. And and the thing is, you know, when you have been with a family, whether it's been my dad or myself, you know, that family's had a Dr. Elijah taking care of them for 50 years. Uh, I, I've said on other podcasts, you know, that out that outlasted any politician, um, any senator, um, any president, etc. And so, you know, you want to have that relationship with a family and a patient for most of their life. And And to me, the more you can help them and educate them to be better consumers themselves, that's really where my passion is. And I get to start when they're born.
0: I love it. Well, that actually um, brings me a good time to talk about my book. And speaking of politicians and healthcare and direct primary care, um, my book is called Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. And one of the fixes is just exactly what you guys are talking about, educating and empowering patients to, to be proactive in their own health. And doctors also it's time doctors take charge of healthcare, the healthcare system again. You know, even not so long ago, when I graduated from pharmacy school in 1994, you know, doctors were still mostly in charge then, but you know, now it's administration. I mean, administrators, you know, people with, you know, bats or MBAs are telling doctors what to do and to me are what to do in healthcare with their patients and how many to see and all that. You guys know that part of the fix is, doctors need to take control of their practice. And direct primary care is one of the fixes. In chapter six of my book, I have a six-step solution of how to fix it. Because one of the things is, we're not just about problems here and talking about problems at Health Solutions. We have solutions. So um, download my book on Amazon. It's available in paperback and Kindle form, Sickened How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. What are you guys' is parting words today?
1: Well, we, of course, would love for you to get our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assisted Healthcare. And we also would ask physicians, if you're listening and this is something that you're interested in getting more involved in, we urge you to join our group, Physicians for Patient Protection. And you can find us on the web, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. And what you said, Sean, is so true. Physicians need to wake up. Physicians need to get empowered because really uh, we can, if we speak together with one voice, we can really make a difference and patients are counting on us. And we really, medicine is more than just a job, it is a calling and we need to answer that call for our patients.
2: Dr. Algebra, I, I, would, I would agree. I mean, I'd love for people to read our book, um, really understand where we're coming from. This is about health equity. It is about health quality. It is about health efficiency and um, empowering patients to have safer care. So those are the big pieces of this. And and the second piece is both Rebecca and I are independent physicians and uh, she runs a DPC practice. I still run a traditional insurance-based practice. I mean, I do see people uh, that don't have insurance for that, obviously, uh, because I don't think I should really turn anyone away. and And the thing is it can work. And yes, I was here last night doing two hours of um, you know the paychecks and some administration, but it's really not it's so much more worth it to me to be handling my own administration and then being able to be my own boss and make the decision for the patient that's best for the patient, not what's best for my administrator or my MBA or another large corporation. I get to look at the patient and say, yeah, I'm going to send you to the same specialist that I would see, that I would see or that I would take my my own children to. And and I have the freedom to put the patient first. So again, I think it's so, so important that people think that working for the hospital is great and it's wonderful and it is steady. uh, But you know what? You lose a part of yourself and you lose a part of what you loved about medicine. And so I really encourage doctors to look into it because treating the patient and prioritizing the patient first is a beautiful thing. It keeps me, keeps me going. Yeah, wow. I, I
1: call that the golden handcuffs. You know, you they may be gold, but they're still handcuffs. And I also encourage patients the same way, you know, look for your neighborhood physician. You don't need to go to the large, huge healthcare system. You know, try to find those small practices. I do that a lot for my patients that need to see a specialist. I'm always looking for those independent practices because that's where patients mm-hmm. will get really personalized service, and that's also where they're gonna have some flexibility with. How much money they're going to spend it's not easy to negotiate with a hospital when it comes to a bill but most specialists private practice offices will work with patients that's part of what they do so yeah not only for doctors to, to own themselves but for a physician for patients to look for those small physician-owned practices as well for their care
0: you know i think we could have a podcast on just that subject maybe we should have you guys back on to talk about <laughs> Any that time. you know i will say dr al-ajba when you said um, and this is what a lot of physicians and I'm, I don't, you know, I, you know, pharmacists think it and, and, and nurses think it, they think, Oh, I go to work for a hospital and I've got, like you said, it's steady. It's consistent. Let me tell you, those hospitals will lay you off whether you're a doctor a pharmacist or a nurse in a heartbeat. And it happens all the time. I've got friends that are physicians and this is next thing you know, no, the hospital, let them go. I mean, yeah, so and that's happens, actually happen-
1: happening a lot right now in the emergency departments, it's really sad. And then what's happening more concernedly, to the top, topic at hand is that they're firing physicians and replacing them with non-physician practitioners as a form of cost savings or as a potential source of increased ordering and revenue. So doctors should definitely realize that loyalty does not always go in their direction. It's A lot of times it's really just about financial bottom line.
0: And don't ever sign the non-compete clause. <laughs> right?
2: Absolutely. That's right.
1: That's right. <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we can talk forever. I appreciate you guys having uh, you know, taking time out of your busy schedules today. I really appreciate you guys having um you know, all the education you're given today, there's a lot of stuff to go over. So um, thank you for listening and watching Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Um, do not forget, Thursday, tune in 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. I actually will be getting interviewed. Uh, one of my good friends, uh, Lee Pence, will be interviewing me and about the history of my pharmacy, our pharmacy, and our podcast and, and my book. So uh, you don't want to miss out Thursday, 8 to 9 a.m. As always, you've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you.